Hello, and welcome to the Inequality Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Durloff, the director of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth, Inequality, and Mobility. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm delighted that today's conversation will be with Shelley Lundberg, the Leonard Broom Professor of Demography and Associate Director of the Broom Center for Demography at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Shelley is one of the world's leading economists and a pioneer in research on gender and racial inequality. Let me give you a few of the highlights. The first thing that we're going to do is discuss the state of gender inequality in America 2023. And so one wants to have the basic facts on the table, as well as understand something about the advances, the progress that's been made over the last several decades. Second, we're going to focus on the mechanisms that underlie contemporary disparities. Much of the important thinking is going to have to do with understanding how norms and identity shape the choices of individuals, constrain the choices of individuals, and become the carriers and determinants of inequality. Finally, we will talk about what policy can do to rectify contemporary inequalities. And here, Shelley's going to take a provocative position and argue that many of the legislative efforts to address inequality, in fact, have had perhaps at best second-order consequences for male-female differences in the United States. Rather, she's going to focus on the importance of phenomena such as norms, which are ultimately societally determined, family determined, and so represent not an insuperable barrier to future progress, but exactly the sort of complex barrier that requires deep social science thinking. Well, hello, everyone. This is Stephen Durloff, and I'm delighted to uh, introduce Shelley Blundberg as today's uh, guest on the Inequality Podcast. What she brings to this conversation is not only pathbreaking scholarship on dimensions of inequality, but focuses on group differences, focuses on gender, and focuses on discrimination, but also participation in the actual process of trying to rectify disparities. So with that in mind, uh, Shelley, welcome, and uh, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Stephen. It's, it's been a while since we've talked about inequality, and always a pleasure. So Shelley, I uh, thought that the first thing I would like to tell the audience about is kind of gender discrimination in the 21st century. Obviously, there's been profound changes in American society in the last 60 years, but nevertheless, disparities remain, discrimination remains. And so I was hoping that you could put on the table a, a vision of how to think about discrimination in 2023. Sure. So the big picture is, you know, according to Pew last year, full-time workers, women workers in the U.S. make about 82% of what full-time male workers earn. And that's been stable for about 20 years. If we want to know how that breaks down, we go to the latest work by Blau and Kahn. And the story that they are telling is that human capital variables, education and experience just don't explain any of the male-female earnings difference anymore. Occupation and industry still do matter. Women and men work in different jobs. And shorter work hours and work interruptions, especially in high-wage jobs, are also important in explaining these differences. That what's really going on now is the high returns to long hours and rigid hours of work is the main thing that is distinguishing, especially among the college graduates, uh, male and female workers. And that, once again, fits with 
another set of interesting studies that show that in the US, in a whole variety of European countries, the major driver of the gender wage gap is the differential returns to children, i.e. the child earnings penalty for women. So the bottom line here seems to be domestic responsibilities plus labor market rigidities are really what's driving most of the remaining uh, uh, gender gap in uh, economic outcomes and that progress has basically stalled out in the last 20 years. Might you say something about the dimensions where progress has been made? In other words, we were to compare the status of women in 1970 to 2023. What are the dimensions in which uh, policy, in which the generative mechanisms of inequality, the source of discrimination have been reduced? Well, I think there the, the huge drivers are the human capital variables. So women's increasing relative levels of education, which have been really profound, combined with more years of work experience, just more women committed to the job market for most of their uh, their life. And those are the two major factors that had that early on, you know, from the 1960s through the um, 1990s eroded most of the uh, uh, gender earnings differential. How would you assess the role of anti-discrimination legislation in having contributed to the diminution of gender inequalities? I think that, you know, that most uh, work that has zeroed in on the impact of anti-discrimination legislation suggests that it's not really very important. Um, I, I think the identification there is has always been a little bit difficult, but uh, it really appears to be the uh, driving forces of changes in women's work effort and uh, educational investment that is really the big picture here. So one of the uh, things that I've taken from some of your recent writings is the importance of moving beyond the so-called, uh, to use your term, choice discrimination dichotomy, a classical vision of of gender inequality. And for that matter, racial inequality was that uh, one who wants to distinguish discrimination from the choices people make. And of course, you emphasize that the choice themselves derive from things that may be endogenous, such as preferences, as well as, as background. So if you could uh, maybe elaborate your thinking there, I'd appreciate it. Well, I think one thing that if we zero in on discrimination, mm-hmm. right, and we look at what's in the textbooks, there's been remarkably little change in that. You know, we in the undergraduate textbooks, we get the standard story that you take, you know, men's wages and women's wages and you uh, decompose the differences into an explained portion and an unexplained portion. And then the unexplained differentials can be due to choices that people make or to pre-market discrimination or discrimination. And and then there's always a discussion of can we control for occupation or not? So how do we think about the differences in occupational distributions between men and women. And a standard way for the textbooks to describe that is, well, there's two ways of looking at it. One is men and women are in different occupations because of differences in preferences that should be respected in a market economy. And the other as differential treatment that systematically steers girls towards lower paid occupations. This whole notion of taking these differences and preferences as just something we have to ignore doesn't make any sense as a social science. You know, gender roles are rigorously policed throughout men's and women's lives. And um, it's often hard to trace out when we have identified social effects or peer effects, whether they're operating through preferences or constraints. So I think one thing that's been going on recently is we've got all kinds of really intriguing 
powerful studies showing that female workers in these professions experience much more serious consequences to bad outcomes. So female surgeons who experience bad surgical outcomes receive much larger decreases in referrals than male surgeons who have had exactly the same outcome. Financial planners who engage in misconduct, if they're female, they get uh, disciplined or fired. If they're men, the consequences are less serious. Uh, if we look at, at little boys and little girls, girls who've been identified by their parents as being headstrong and boys who have been labeled as dependent by their parents, if we follow them into adulthood, the headstrong women and the dependent boys experience very substantial earnings penalties that we cannot explain in other ways. So that's one thing is constraints are different. We tend not to observe those differences in constraints. Expected treatment skews your choices, right? And once again, there's some powerful examples of this. So the Burson et al. paper, uh, Acting Wife, shows that single women in an elite MBA program dampen down expressions of their ambition if there are men around. Undergraduate women consider when they're choosing their major both the labor market consequences and the potential marriage market consequences, right? So STEM fields, they'll pay more, but then maybe nobody will want to marry you. You know, the paper by Exley and co-authors shows that it's true, women negotiate less, but then they show in this paper that women experience less benefits to negotiation also. So this can be a rational choice, you know, choice given these constraints. Might you say a bit about your own intellectual journey? You've been studying issues of discrimination for for many decades, including a fair amount of time where I think that this was not these were not central to the way economists thought about inequality, whether or not the profession is where it should be. I certainly think it's much more salient in uh, in, in 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 how economists try to conceptualize group differences. I would I would certainly love to hear about how you think of your intellectual journey. How's your thinking changed, and what parts uh, have stood the test of time? I think when I was in graduate school, I think I declared that I was never going to do any work on gender or family or discrimination. And um, in fact, I came out of graduate school and I was pretty traditional labor economist in a lot of ways. It became clear to me within a couple of years that this was a very bad field for me to be working in politically um, and that I wasn't going to get anything published in it. And so I moved into sort of straight labor, structural labor supply models, a little bit of work on discrimination. And about the time that I got tenure at the University of Washington in 1989, that's where I was. And that is really where I started to work more explicitly on families. And if you're working on families, you're working on gender. Then in the mid-90s, the MacArthur Foundation decided that they were going to fix economics. And one of the ways they were going to fix economics is they set up a bunch of research networks. And one of them, which was led by you and Ken Arrow, was on... Um, uh, economic inequality. And I was in that network for two years. And eventually, uh, they set up an interdisciplinary research network on the family that was much more closely tied to my own interests. So I moved there. And this was really the first time that I had sat in a room and listened to really brilliant uh, social scientists talk about what they did. At about the same time, the Demography Center at the University of Washington, which was a real serious operation, started to reach out beyond sociology. And I started to hang out with demographers. Um, you know, I got very involved with the Population Association of America. I was on their board of directors for a while uh, and eventually served as the director of the Pop Center at 
UW for three years. So I've been sort of immersed in demography and therefore in a much broader social science um, environment for, for decades. And I that has profoundly affected the way I think about this. And I think that you know, the kinds of things that, that your center is doing on inequality and, and social connections and so on is helping to bring us closer to the other social sciences. And I think there's a lot that we can fruitfully learn from one another and work together on. So that leads to the broader question. You've emphasized in your recent writings the essential interdisciplinary nature of asking questions about discrimination, asking about group inequality, inequality in general. From the vantage point of the economics profession, you know, how, how to op- what might be done to help operationalize this? On the basis of my, you know, more than 40 years of hanging out with economists, I've developed some, you know, cantankerous ideas about what it is about economics that prevents us from thinking more broadly about issues surrounding gender, potentially race, and so on. And one is, and others have pointed this out, is economists have extraordinarily strong priors. The one that that gets pointed out with respect to race is market bias, right? It takes enormous quantities of evidence for economists to believe that markets aren't working well. The same is true of when we look at gender differentials, but with gender, there's another strong prior, which psychologists call gender essentialism. Extremely strong tendency to default back to the story that men and women have different outcomes because men and women are just fundamentally different. I have seen this over and over and over in discussions with other economists of the kind of work that I've that I've done over the years. So for, on the market side, I actually that, that one has, has puzzled me simply because the theoretical models that would say markets eliminate discrimination are very, very special. There's a long history of, of work. I'm thinking of, of David Easley and Larry Bloom, who asked questions such as under what circumstances are the... Uh, the, the rational actors in financial markets going to be selected uh, uh, over time? And the answer was they were pretty delicate conditions. Similarly, the, uh, the argument that discrimination is uh, inefficient and therefore non-discriminating uh, owners should, uh, should buy out discriminating owners always struck me as, as bizarre for, for a reason. I'd be interesting your reactions to is it assumes that there's no utility from discrimination. In other words, the idea is the owner has antipathy towards a group and therefore must be compensated for, for interactions. Another possibility is there's something uh, ugly in a person, in human nature, character, whatever you want to call it, in which they're willing to sacrifice profits in order to exercise arbitrary power. And so I don't know if there's a, you know, so much a question. It's just simply an observation that the gap between rigorous economic theory and the notion that markets select against is vast, and it's really remarkable. And I think what you said is right. There's a market bias. Yeah. And the other thing is we construct theories about all kinds of you know, complicated market structures and so on, and we still default to the simple story. When we come to a specific applied problem, believe that we can take preferences as exogenous, right? That they're simply determined somewhere outside our system. With gender and race, that's just nonsense, right? These are you know, our... Preferences, norms, attitudes are clearly endogenously formed. And I think what people doing stratification economics would would argue is that there's an institutional structure going on here, that groups can benefit from discrimination, and that there are you know, norm structures within these groups that are embodied in institutions that maintain them, possibly against market forces. Yeah. And so I, w- I did want to explore this issue of the economics profession. And so you have been a fundamentally important leader 
in in addressing issues of of, of inequality uh, in, and gender-based injustice in the profession. And so I, I wanted you to say a bit about where you think progress has been made and frankly, what needs to be done next? Well, there is now a substantial body of rigorous empirical evidence showing that in fact, women receive differential treatment in the economics profession. Tenure decisions in publication decisions in acceptances to competitive conferences, right? There are dozens of papers now that I've sort of amassed in a couple of different places to put it all together. So 20 years ago, it was possible for uh, economists to say, well, there's no proof that there's discrimination against women in economics. Maybe they're just not interested or it's the math thing or it's the baby thing or something like that. And we now know this is just not true. My feeling about this is that most of these studies suggest that there's just implicit bias, uh, that women are held to higher standards by referees and editors. But there's also clearly some structural issues. And so the fairly recent paper showing that the adoption of gender neutral tenure clock extension policies by universities substantially disadvantaged female assistant professors relative to male assistant professors, a totally unintended consequence of a, a well-meaning decision. Could I ask you for the audience to explain a bit more about that fact and the interpretation? Okay, so the tenure clock is vitally important in economics. And given the publication lags that are widespread in economics, the there is a race for every assistant professor in economics to get enough papers out before the seven-year deadline hits and they're brought up for a ten, an upper-out tenure decision. When you have a baby, it was at one point the case that nobody got their tenure clock extended because of that. Uh, many universities said, well, the mother can get her tenure clock extended. And then in a desire to sort of foster involved parenting by men as well as women, many universities uh, shifted to a system where if you had a baby, whether you were the father or the mother, your tenure clock could be extended by a year. So you had a little bit more time. The consequence of that is that on average, the male assistant professors were able to get one more substantial journal article accepted for publication. The women got on average zero. And one might infer that this is because the parenting duties attendant upon said birth were not distributed uh, evenly. It's also clear that even though the women didn't you know, they didn't publish an extra paper, but they were doing as well as they had been before. But their tenure probability fell, no doubt, because tenure committees were starting to look at the men who were performing higher and shifted their standards, clearly, to favor the men even more. So there are, there are many, many uh, deans and other university administrators trying desperately to figure out what to do about this one. Well, it's a it's particularly disturbing because it it alludes to or it's an example of the of the phenomena that you you described, which is the unequal uh, roles in terms of child rearing, in terms of household work, et cetera. And we have an, a, a a mythos that highly educated people will be beyond prejudices or beyond uh, unequal norms, et cetera. But it says that these things are extraordinarily deep rooted. You see the same behaviors. And that in and of itself, I think, speaks to the uh, deep nature of these of these cultural norms, et cetera. Yeah, our priors are extraordinarily powerful. 
So I, I did have an incident once where this whole question of are women discriminated in economics came up. And I said, well, the evidence is now clear. Yes, they are. Uh, it may not be deliberate discrimination, but there is definitely unequal treatment. And I was informed by someone that I had a messaging problem here. And my messaging problem was that I had this body of research I could allude to, but they had personal experience on a hiring committee that tried very hard to hire a woman and failed. So, you know, who would believe me? And my suggestion was that you think about your personal experience as a data point. I'm telling you about a body of research, you're telling me about a data point. But I think that is an incredibly widespread uh, attitude. And for economists of all people, it's amusing because after all, if I said that I, I did unusually well in the stock market and therefore that refutes efficient markets theory, I would be laughed out of the room. And so uh, I'll, I'll put that on the table as an interesting comparison. <laughs> <laughs> so Shelley, could I ask you to talk about public policy? What sort of dimensions of, uh, of policy change do you think would be most likely to have uh, significant effects in attenuating uh, gender-based disparities? Well, I think we now have this beginnings of a pretty interesting body of research suggesting ways in which it is possible to change norms. For example, there's a number of several studies based on several countries that looked at the expansion of connections to commercial television and the exposure to modern programming that uh, had an effect on fairly traditional communities. And what they have found in, in several different uh, locations is that exposure to modern programming where they would see affluent families with smaller, fewer numbers of children, it had a negative impact on fertility, had a positive effect on divorce, and in general had a positive impact on women's economic status. So that's a sort of an incidental one. But there's also been a number of studies in India and other more traditional societies showing that programs intended to affect children's gender norms in school actually do have significant and uh, persistent effects. Uh, in other cases, there's been development policies that are focused on women that later observe increases in women's economic status, changes in their husband's uh, ideas about what community norms regarding working women are and so on. So I think we're starting to see evidence that both in a deliberate way and in an incidental way, policies actually can affect gender norms in ways that significantly impact women's status. There's a lot of discussion now, something quote unquote called parental rights, which seems to be an explicit uh, agenda arguing against the role of schools as, as conduits for uh, for 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 worldviews of uh, which uh, which fight against uh, traditional stereotyping, et cetera. As I said, gender norms are uh, contested. Yeah, and I think that what we have seen in the U.S. right now is a swing in the direction of serious contestation of less traditional gender norms in a variety of different um, domains. And schools would be one. Abortion laws would be another. On the other side, the Nordic countries, which have tried to push in the other direction, have attempted to promote gender equality by adjusting their parental leave policies, for example. And I think if we look at what happened in Norway, where initially there was an extremely low take up of paternal childcare leave, over time it has gradually increased. 
And there has been strong evidence that this is happening through social contagion, that young men who've seen older brothers take paternal leave are much more likely to take it themselves. And so clearly there are sort of slow going changes in community social norms that can possibly be triggered by effective policy. What about the economics profession? If you were uh, to uh, identify specific policies you'd like to see adopted, and if you don't want to answer it, it's okay. But <laughs> it's, it's not a matter of wanting to answer, Stephen. It would be a matter of of can I come up with anything? You know, I have found the last twenty years in economics to be somewhat discouraging, and I think what we've seen in some of these recent studies is that the decisions that disadvantage women are taking place behind closed doors, and we can't get in there to affect these subjective decisions. So how are tenure committees deciding in the face of marginal tenure cases, who should get tenure and who should be turned down? And I think there is now lots of evidence that a lot of the factors that come into account are very disadvantageous to women. I think, is he a great colleague? Is he good on the soccer team comes in? How many papers have they published we're just going to ignore the whole parental leave part of it and assume that everybody was working full time all the time. I, I, I think I actually do not have any what I think would be effective suggestions about how to get at that other than just continue to talk about it. Shelley, are there some subjects that uh, you wanted to, to talk about that we haven't covered? Uh, yes, there is one thing. I was talking earlier about sort of these characteristics of economists that that make us maybe not look at gender issues very effectively. And one of them was these strong priors, the market bias and mm -hmm. the gender essentialism bias. The other one is that men are the default economic agent. If we think of a generic economic agent, they are male. That prevents us from looking effectively at men's problems, right? Cases where men are disadvantaged or where you know men's behavior is potentially socially uh, damaging are things that we don't look at very effectively because we think of male behavior as human behavior. And a couple of examples of that are um, we, we know that in the wake of mass layoffs, men are more likely to die. Women are not. What's going on there? Uh, I mean, isn't that an interesting question? Why are men more likely to die, but women aren't? One that I've been involved with directly is the educational gender gap. Um, why are men now much less likely to graduate from college than women? A number of studies suggested it's because boys are more vulnerable to family disadvantage when they're younger. The evidence mustered for that is based on behavior in school. Sons of single mothers or uh, sons of low-educated parents and so on are much more likely to get bad grades, get suspended from school, or experience other kinds of behavioral issues in school. With a couple of different data sets, I eventually, and some uh, co-authors, I eventually looked at, but what do the long-term outcomes look like? They're identical for men and women. So what's going on? So the assumption was school suspension was an identical indicator for both boys and girls of low skill development in school, but it's not. Behavior in school is extremely gendered. Boys who are under stress, you know, under-resourced and so on, are much more likely to act out. And in one data set, I found that the girls are more likely to exhibit uh, symptoms of depression. This is, this is a really simple concept, that behavior in 
men and women is not necessarily an indicator, an identical indicator of underlying skills and prospects for the future. And we have to take that seriously. And that involves taking men seriously as agents who are in fact affected by gender norms and the social constraints on their behavior. Shelley, thank you. This has been uh, an absolutely wonderful conversation. As always, when I talk to you, I'll be thinking about it for the next two hours. And so I'm grateful for your time. Very great to talk to you, Stephen. Thanks a lot. All right. Shelley Lundberg demonstrated during our interview, gender discrimination plagues many professional fields, including those of academia and science. Unfortunately, there's no shortage of examples throughout history that we could draw upon for this episode's Inequality in Perspective segment. But we did come across a particularly salient and damning one in the story of Marte Gauthier. Dr. Gauthier is believed by many to have made the first discovery of an extra chromosome in those with Down syndrome. Through extensive experimentation, she was the first to become aware of such an abnormality, but her lab did not have the microscopes powerful enough to confirm this. She gave her slides to a colleague, Jerome Lejeune, who had access to more powerful equipment. He confirmed the abnormality, but then went on to claim the discovery as his own. In the research paper announcing the findings, Dr. Godier was listed behind Lejeune, and her last name is misspelled. Lejeune and the foundation established under his name following his death repeatedly denied Dr. Godier was the first to make the discovery. Throughout Godier's life, the foundation tried very hard to suppress any attempts to publicly acknowledge her true contributions to Down syndrome research. The most notable instance of this came in 2014, when the French Federation of Human Genetics planned to award Dr. Godier the grand prize. This final segment is a fictionalized retelling of the moments leading up to that event and was co-written by one of Stone Center's new interns, Celine Hildegard de Reut. Dr. Godier still went on to have a long and distinguished career in pediatric cardiology, eventually becoming Master of Research at the French National Institute of Health and Medical Research. She passed away last year at the age of 96. More information on her life and work can be found in the show notes. It was 3 a.m. and Martha was still awake. She had been jolted out of bed an hour earlier from a terrible nightmare. With the thin sheen of sweat that had formed on her brow now cold and clammy against the winter breeze coming in through the window of her hotel room, she laid her head back down and tried to will herself to sleep. But, wide awake, she couldn't shake off the fear and unease that the nightmare had left behind. She could barely remember the details, yet the raw emotion echoed in her mind. A deep, familiar anxiety that had plagued her throughout her professional life. One image remained with her, even after the rest of the dream had started to fade away. Her standing on the podium, medal in hand, stumbling through the speech that she had long waited for, but almost lost hope would ever be hers to deliver. The expectant audience frowns and shakes their head in disapproval, as if to say, he was right, she doesn't have a clue what she is talking about. She was resolved to not let this nightmare become a reality. Martha was going to be awarded the grand prize from the French Federation of Human Genetics for her contribution to Down syndrome research. The Federation even asked her to prepare a presentation that would allow her to publicly, and in her own words, describe her role in discovering the extra chromosome in those with Down syndrome. After all, 
She was the one who first discovered the extra chromosome, not Jerome. He may have been the first one to see it, but this was only because he had better equipment. Without her research direction and the slides that she had given him, he would not have made the discovery. It was something that she had told herself for decades, but now was going to get the chance to tell the rest of the world. Ever since that discovery had been announced in 1959, Jerome Lejeune had always made sure that collective memory would know that Marta Gautier's contributions were very important, but not groundbreaking, and that she did not make the discovery. Even after his death, the foundation that had been set up in his honor diligently maintained the same argument. Now, 55 years later, she had the opportunity to claim the credit that she was long due. I want to be very clear, the draft of her speech said. Jerome has done amazing work in the field of Down syndrome research, but... Martha stopped to think. Was it too assertive? Would the line come off as tasteless? She got out of bed, went back to her small desk, and turned on her laptop, which already had the speech open on it. She had spent more than 50 years thinking about a speech just like this one. She had practically composed entire drafts in her head during those moments of unbearable frustration, those times when she would come across yet another article about the wonderful Lejeune and his breakthrough discovery. But with each review of her speech, she made it tamer and removed more and more material that the Lejeune Foundation might somehow find offensive. She thought the speech would be a cathartic experience, something that would allow her to let the decades of frustration pour out of her. But instead, what flowed out of her was self-doubt. What if Lejeune was right? Had she spent the last five decades quibbling over a contribution that was indeed trivial? Should she just let it go and let Lejeune and his foundation keep the honor? What difference would it really make? The field of Down syndrome research and those with Down syndrome had benefited from the knowledge. Wasn't that what mattered most? These thoughts had driven her to sheepishly turn down awards in the past, lest the foundation call her out and discredit her. But when she found out about the grand prize, she decided that she wasn't going to be silent any longer, and she was going to be clear about what she felt in her heart, about her true but long-effaced contribution to the science. This time, without changing a single word in her speech, she turned her laptop off, went back to bed, and finally fell asleep. At the conference the next morning, Martha remained uneasy as this long-awaited moment became more real. She wasn't sure how people would receive her. Certainly, the Lejeune Foundation would be present. But would they say anything? So far, everything was going well. No matter where she went, people seemed to go out of their way to say hello to her, to ask questions about her work and advice on their own, or take a photo with her. Years of avoiding ceremonies and conferences had left her with the feeling that the field of genetic research had moved past her. But this conference proved that she was still a prominent figure. By the time of the lunch honoring her, she felt light and optimistic, as if she had been transported back to 1959. At long last, she was going to receive her due recognition as an individual instead of in support of Jerome Lejeune. And so far, there had been no sign of his ghost haunting the halls.
Midway through the lunch, Martha spotted Chloe, the events organizer, being approached by two official-looking men dressed in black and wearing windbreakers. They seemed to be very out of place, and they were staring right at Martha. Before Chloe could say much, one of them produced a piece of paper and handed it to her. She read it quickly, shaking her head. She then looked at the bailiffs and seemed only to say her word or two. One of them then took out something small from his jacket pocket, a camera or something like that. Martha couldn't really tell. She also couldn't figure out what Chloe was trying to tell them in, so she decided to get up and make her way to the bailiffs. Others were starting to gather around as well. Chloe was now arguing with the men, her irritation growing to a fever pitch, but once Martha came to her side, her tone shifted. She immediately became apologetic and helpless. Martha, I don't know why this is happening. I'm so sorry. These two gentlemen are here to record your speech, record this whole event, I suppose, and they have some court order that's allowing them to do it. Did the Lejeune Foundation send you? Martha asked plainly. She wasn't even sure why she felt the need to ask something so obvious. The bailiffs nodded. Yes, they did, Chloe confirmed. Saying it seemed to pain her even more. I didn't know they were coming. They hadn't even reached out to us. This is all so sudden. The giddy, lighthearted feeling that had filled Marta earlier was now completely extinguished. In its stead rushed in a crushing sense of defeat and resignation. She felt heavy and weak. She wanted to be alone, wanted to fast forward past the rest of the event, but that wasn't going to happen. Other members of the Federation came to Marta, apologizing, consoling, promising to remove the men, and then apologizing again and again after they realized that they couldn't do that. Instead, they had to cancel the event. As Chloe explained, they just couldn't risk a lawsuit by the Lejeune Foundation, and it appeared that the Foundation was poised to launch one following the event. Martha simply nodded her head. I understand, she uttered a few times. Martha had taken her seat again, with her focus on the podium, and all the nightmares she had, she never even had one that ended before she even reached it. The next day, in a small, private ceremony, the Federation presented Martha with the grand prize. The President gave a few remarks, heartfelt, but brief, and then excused herself as she had to leave for another engagement. The floor was now Martha's. The award felt heavy in her hands. As she faced the small crowd and smattering of applause, she smiled meekly. She reached into her coat pocket and touched the speech that she had prepared, but didn't pull it out. Thank you, she said, tears forming at the corners of her eyes. Thank you very much. She looked down at the floor and couldn't bring herself to say anything else. The Inequality Podcast is a production of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth, Inequality, and Mobility at the University of Chicago. It is hosted by myself, Stephen Durloff, along with Damon Jones, Jeffrey Wadka, and Ariel Khalil. This episode was recorded, sound engineered, and produced by Eric Gepper with support from Gerardo Espinal Franco. Thanks as well to the Center's Executive Director, Grace Hammond, for all her support. Please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast among your friends, and send any questions or feedback to ucstonecenter at gmail.com. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us.